And then we traveled into knowing a little bit more about who is God. We discovered that he's just, we discovered that he's righteous, we discovered that he's triune, but we also discovered that he was slow to anger, he's a forgiving God, and he's very gracious. And then we traveled and we said, okay, given that, how does God want us to respond to him? What is God asking of us? And we realized that what God desires of us is not a far off, distant sort of, hey, there's a God out there, but we don't interact with him or them or her or whatever it might be, but a deep, personal, intimate relationship with him. I asked a question, do we enjoy our relationship with Jesus? And one of the things that I think is important for us to ask ourselves, is that true? Do we truly enjoy the relationship that we have with him? Or are we just kind of going through the motions, ticking off the boxes, and just doing what we need to do, thinking that as we do, that's going to get us to heaven? Then, last week, we talked about Jesus. We looked at two very important aspects. We looked at his incomparable life, And we also looked at who he is as an individual. This morning, we're going to take another part, and we're going to look at his death, we're going to look at his resurrection, and we're going to look at his promised return. And before we get into that, what I want to encourage you in is that these aspects are absolutely core, central to the Christian faith. They are essentially what we have that brings about eternal life, but also the proof that we have that we can trust what Jesus has done. So this morning, we're going to ask the same question that we asked last week, but we're going to look at a different aspect, Um, and that question is this. What is so important and unique about Jesus? And the reason that we need to ask this is, is oftentimes when we're talking to people about Jesus Christ, what they will look at is they will either say, hey, that's good for you, I'm glad to hear about that, Or, oftentimes, what individuals will do, particularly if they're in sort of a polytheistic aspect, is say, sure, I'll put Jesus in my repertoire of multiple gods and include him sort of in this facet. And what we need to encourage people in is to help them to see the uniqueness of Jesus and why he was God in the flesh and why our faith and trust must be in him and him alone. So let's take a moment, and what I want to do is I want to say this. Uh, Dr. Robert Lewis starts off and he says that the unanimous explanation by the writers of the New Testament is that the death with which Jesus died on the cross was a death suffered for us. That's key to what we're going to discover this morning. All of the New Testament writers are saying The reason that Jesus died on the cross was for you and I. All of them say that. There's no confusion. There's no sort of, well, you know, it was kind of for this, but it was really for that. They are all claiming that Jesus came on a mission. And we have to recognize that that mission is for you and I. The cross is key to the Christian faith. It is not an afterthought. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment and help us to see that this is God's plan from the get-go. And so with that, the first thing that I want us to see is this, that Jesus' death on the cross was and is a substitute for our sins. 
And why are we talking about that? Well, I want to take a minute and I want to encourage all of us that we must understand at the core of who we are that the reason that Jesus died on the cross was because we are sinners in need of a savior. Jesus didn't die, Jesus didn't do what he did to make good people better. And why am I bringing that up? We're seeing that in a lot of the sort of context of what's being spoken about in churches today. Jesus makes a good person better. If you come to Jesus, he's gonna take an already good individual and make you better. No, that's not the case. Jesus makes a dead man live, period. And why do we need to know that? Because when we discover and we realize that we are dead apart from Christ, that our destiny is one that is not to head toward Mecca or the kingdom or heaven or a good place or whatever it is, it's to go to hell, a literal place that is separated from God where there is eternal punishment and eternal anguish. And that the only means by which we are able to escape that is not by our own self-righteousness, not by being good, not by, although it's not bad, coming to church enough. It's by trusting in Christ's death on the cross, which was a substitute for our sins. That means that we are saved. We are saved by grace, through faith, in our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's why he went to the cross. The reason that we're good, the reason that we do good things, is not so that we might be approved by God, it's because we have been approved by Jesus through his death, and we are doing it as an act of worship. And so the first thing that we have to recognize, and one of the things that is so important for us to see is, apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins. And I've said it before, that we're flatlined, okay? There is no means by which we can get ourselves to heaven on our own. It is all about what Christ has done on the cross. And so, Robert Lewis also says this, the writers of the New Testament agree that Jesus' death can deliver men and women from the penalty God imposes on our sins by taking upon himself the wrath due us. Okay? He becomes our substitute. Therefore, his death has immense personal implications. We have to recognize that Christ went to the cross on our behalf. And what Christ is doing there is standing in, or the word is atoning for our sins. He's taking what we have done upon his shoulders and paying a debt that we simply cannot pay. Why is that important? Because when we come forward and we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if we come forward thinking that we have anything in what we've done to get ourselves to where we are, that becomes self-righteousness. We begin to think, oh, I did it. I'm the one who got myself saved. I'm the one who's been good enough. I'm the one who has done good things. And that minimizes our faith and our worship of Jesus Christ. 
And so we realize that the cross is key to everything that we do. Now, the other thing that I want to tell you is this. I talked about earlier that this was God's plan from the get-go. And what we're going to see is, in a particular instance, as well as other prophecy, but for this one, Jesus' death was foretold 750 years before it actually happened. Why is that important? Why is it important to look back to the Old Testament and to see what's stated about the long-awaited Messiah as well as what will happen to the Messiah when he comes? Oftentimes, when we've talked to individuals and we've given them an understanding of who Jesus is, several people might say that this was sort of God's plan B. What do I mean by that? That God was doing his thing, things were going along, the people of God were coming to him, and it wasn't going well. Okay? We read through the Old Testament that they were constantly looking for other idols. They were looking for a king. They wanted their own God. Things got worse. God came along, helped them out. And so sometimes people will think, that essentially God got frustrated, or better yet, I'll use a football analogy, that it came down, essentially, to the last second of the last play of the last part of the game, and God said, it isn't going well. We gotta change it up. We have a problem here, and we're losing desperately, so I don't know what to do, but we're gonna call an audible. Jesus, get in there, and we're gonna throw a Hail Mary pass and just hope that you catch the ball and we win the game. That's not the case. And why is this important? The reason that we look back to Old Testament prophecy and we see it explained is because it helps us to see that Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, as well as his promised return are God's plan A from the get-go. This is God's game plan. This is what he has in his playbook. He doesn't waver. He doesn't worry, and he doesn't change. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is for us as we watch the world unfold. The reason that I'm telling you that this is God's plan A is right now, when we see what's going on in the world, we see some of the things that are occurring, we begin to wonder, is Jesus really real? Is he really going to return? And as we look back and we realize that this is God's plan A, that God had a path of salvation declared through Jesus Christ, that Christ came, lived, died on the cross, rose from the grave, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and has promised to return. If we look back and we see the reality of what has occurred, and we recognize that it is real, we can stand with humility but bold confidence that what is to come indeed will occur. Christ will return as a triumphant king. And so when we look at this, we see this prophecy foretold 750 years before it actually happened. In Isaiah 54, 4 through 12, we are told that Jesus would bear our griefs and our sorrows. He also would be pierced and crushed for our transgressions or our sins. And we discover that the Lord is the one. The Lord caused the sin of us all to be upon him. Therefore, the Lord crushed him, I put in parentheses, Jesus, as a guilt offering. Yet Jesus will justify the many, bearing their iniquities as he pours himself out 
to death to bear the sins of many. This is so important to see because God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to occur. This is what is going to happen. I am going to give you my one and only son. I am going to crush him. I'm going to pierce him. I'm going to essentially destroy him for your, and I'm including me, transgressions, your sin. And the reason that I bring that up is when I think about the fact that I, I am the one who is culpable and I am the one for which Christ goes to the cross. Now, I'm not saying it just individually. I'm just taking this on me. It's for all of us. But that has immense implications on me as an individual. That I look and I realize that what I have done, I am guilty of. And yet, God says, I'm going to give my son for you, plural, so that you may have eternal life. He's going to go. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to lay, essentially, your sin on his shoulders and pay your debt so that you can get off scot-free. But not only scot-free, you also will inherit a kingdom of which you will live with him throughout eternity and there will be no more hurt, no more pain, and no more sin. That draws my heart to worship. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is when we realize truly how much we owe Christ and yet truly what Christ has done, that drives our heart toward worship. That drives us toward Jesus Christ. When we think, hey, I'm good, I did it fine, Jesus came in and just made my life better, we don't fully understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so when we talk to people, when we encourage them, we have to give them the bad news. Because without the bad news, how can there be good news? And when we realize how bad the bad news really is, that's what makes the good news even better. And so one of the things that I want to encourage all of us in is this. Lovingly, but with humility, do not be afraid to tell people that they're dead in their sin. Yes, it's offensive, but I guarantee you that when they hear and discover who they are apart from Christ, but who they can be because of Christ, the worship of Christ is wholly authentic and wholly real. And that's what we're after. Jesus' death was foretold 750 years before it actually happened. And interestingly enough, notice what's stated here. The details of the crucifixion. And as we look at the crucifixion, it is accurate to what Jesus had happened to him. Think through this for a minute. God comes out and says, hey, this is my plan. This is what's going to occur. I'm here to tell you that at some point in time, to the people who are hearing God, there is going to be a sacrifice for you. And this individual who we now know as Jesus is going to go to the cross on your behalf. I'm telling you now, right? Think through this for a minute. Would a coach in a football game come forward and tell everybody his exact playbook if he wasn't confident that he was going to win? No. Absolutely not. 
No coach would come forward and say, hey, on this play, this is what we're going to do. On this play, we're going to do, oh, P.S., by the way, we're going to do a run play here. They're going to go right up the middle. So if you want, you just stack your defense. They're not going to give the game plan. So think about that for a minute. God does. And God says, this is what's going to happen. Why? Because God knows that he's already won. And the reason I bring that up is to help us to see the sovereignty of God his steadfast hand throughout time, his plan working to bring about the restoration of mankind to his kingdom, despite what goes on around the world. And why do I bring this up? When we watch Christ on the cross, when we watch him suffer, everyone there is saying, game over, it's done. Everybody thinks, oh my gosh, What's going to happen now? And what we need to remember is if God foretold this, but then also foretold of a resurrection, anyone who's truly watching is going to be able to say, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to occur. I don't know exactly what's going to transpire here. But I've been told that this is not the end. And so for us today, on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, when we look at the world and when you see what's going on and we see all the trouble and we see all the challenges that are there and we see what's happening and we wonder, really, is there a God? We can confidently say, yes, there is, because we know this is God's plan A and God has told us that Christ will return. Now, the other thing that I want to show you is this. Not only was Christ's death foretold 750 years before it actually happens, but his death was realized in history. In Luke 23, 33-46, as well as other passages, but this is a good one, we read a detailed account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke was a doctor. He speaks essentially to what happened to Jesus, letting everybody know this is what happened to him. He was crucified. He died. And they don't try to hide it. They don't try to make it different. They don't try to make it better. And the reason I'm bringing that up is there's many individuals that speak to this idea of a conspiracy theory. They speak to this idea that people got together and they decided to come up with this plan to create this guy who they would make out to be God, who would go on the cross and apparently die from it, but not really, and then go into a tomb and then somehow he would have this scuba tank in there and he would have air for three days and then escape and then be hidden from everybody and nobody would be able to to find him. Now you're looking at that and you're thinking this is crazy, but people actually believe this. They actually think that there is a conspiracy, and I'll tell you right now, just go read The Da Vinci Code, watch the movie, that's what that whole movie is all about. People went in droves to watch this movie and they were like, oh my gosh, Jesus actually went on and lived. He was this human person and there's this big conspiracy that everybody's covering up and he was just a man. No, Jesus was a man, but he was also God in the flesh. And that's what we're going to see in just a minute. His death was realized in history. And now we also have to take a moment and realize that this death was explained by several New Testament writers. What did it mean, right? Okay, so this person comes, says that they are God, says that the only way to them 
is essentially through Jesus, if you want to get to the Father. And then Jesus comes forward and he says, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to go to the cross, but three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. Great. Why? Why are you doing this? Are you just doing this as a display of who you are? But is there a purpose behind it, which drives back to the whole reason why Christ goes to the, to the cross in the, for, in the first place? In one of the passages that I want to take, which is Romans 5, 6 through 10, as well as others, but this is a good one, we come to discover that Christ dies for us. It's a reiteration of exactly what I said before, that when we realize what Christ has done for you and I on our behalf, we discover how rich our life with him truly is. We read, you see, just at the right time, okay? Notice that. Okay, just at the right time, like I said before, this was God's plan A from the beginning. This is not a Hail Mary pass. This isn't God saying, holy cow, things have totally gone wrong. I don't know what to do. We're gonna try to figure this out. Jesus, you better get in there and do something, and I hope that they catch the ball. At just the right time, as God sovereignly designed, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? Good people? The ungodly. And I want to pause there for a minute, okay? The ungodly. That's you and I, apart from Jesus Christ. What does that mean, ungodly, without God? So we don't have God in and of ourselves. We are not gods in and of ourselves, Christ's purpose was he died on the cross for subject, you and I, who are ungodly. And then watch this. We rarely will, uh, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Right? Now, think about this, just logically. Anybody willing here to give up their life right now? Anybody want to just, you know, hey, I'm a righteous man. Will you give up your life for me? Anybody want to do that? Any takers? No? Okay. Well, I'm not righteous, but I'm a, I'm a good person. Anybody want to die for me today? Case in point, okay? Think about that. Would you stand in? This is what drives my heart to worship Jesus even more. I look at this, and honestly, I care about you guys, and I love you, but I don't know that I would stand in and give my life up for you. I don't know that I'd do that. Maybe. But here's the thing. Watch this. If you're nice to me, maybe. If you're kind to me, maybe. But certainly not if you spit in my face and call me names. Make fun of me and hate me, and ridicule me, and beat me, and bruise me. I'm not gonna do that for you. Well, we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the reiteration, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't get better, we didn't improve ourselves, 
We didn't escalate ourselves or educate ourselves to a heaven or to a Mecca or to a greater reality. We were still sinners, ungodly, in need of a savior. Christ died for us. Mocked, beaten, and despised. And here's the result. Since we have now been justified, okay, we were guilty, due a penalty. Our destiny and our penalty was to be apart from God because we are ungodly. But because of his death, we have been justified. How have we been justified? By his blood. Christ's shed blood justifies us before God. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Do you see how this works? Do you see how when we realize who we are apart from God and yet what we have because of what Jesus has done, our worship gets wholly stronger for our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. Now, this is what I was driving toward. For if when we were God's enemies, notice earlier I said, hey, I'm a good person, I'm a righteous person, would you die for me? And then I turned to you and I said, I, I don't know that I would die for you even if you're good. And then I said, well, wait a minute. Would anybody die for anybody who's their enemy? Jesus did. And, and I think about that and I begin to realize, I'm like, I'm an enemy of God apart from him. I'm not a good person, right, who's doing good things. I'm not somebody who can ascend myself through either intellectual uh, understanding or good works or acts of kindness to get myself to God. The bottom line is I'm his enemy. And if I were there, I would not have been standing there saying, hey, Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend. I would have been yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus would look at me and he would go to the cross and he would say, you know, that guy right there, the one that's yelling crucify, I'll die for everybody but him. No, what does Jesus do? He says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Holy cow. Here I'm yelling, crucify, crucify, get rid of this guy. And Jesus goes to the cross on my behalf as his enemy and has the ability to do so and say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but that's somebody that I really want to get to know. For if when we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled, okay, brought back wholly and fully. Reconciliation is a break in a relationship that has been divided and separated. But through Christ's blood and his death on the cross, we are justified as well as reconciled, brought back together wholly and completely. 
with no separation to him, we are reconciled back to relationship with God through what? What brings that about? The death of his son, the cross. And here's the worship part. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Speaking to the upcoming resurrection. I love this passage because when we take time to dive into it, we discover truly who we are apart from God and yet truly who we are when we have Christ in our life. And it drives us to a deeper aspect of worship. And so for this first part, we've seen that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for our sins. We recognize that it's not a plan B, it's not a Hail Mary pass, it was foretold and it has been planned by God. We realize that this death was realized in history and we also recognize that the explanation of the death by the New Testament writers is to help us to understand that apart from Jesus we are dead in our sins, but with Christ we are reconciled to him wholly and fully, and we are saved because of Christ's death and, and this is what is important, his resurrection. You cannot just have the death of Christ and rejoice without the resurrection. And we're gonna drive to that here in just a minute, okay? The next thing I want you to see, which is where I'm going, is that Jesus' resurrection from the grave was his greatest miracle. We talked earlier about the miracles that Christ performed. We showed how Jesus authenticated himself with the claims that he made, that he healed a blind man, that he rose Lazarus from the grave, that he walked on water, that he calmed a storm. But his greatest miracle of all was when he went to people and he said, destroy this temple and I tell you I will raise it up in three days. And everybody looked over at the brick and mortar and they said, what are you doing? And Jesus said, don't look there. Look, and I'm gonna, I'm not, but look here. I'm not Jesus, but for the analogy. Look here. And one of the things that I want to take a moment in is, is this. You cannot have Christ without the cross, and you cannot have the cross without Christ. But you cannot have either of them without the resurrection. And the reason that I want to take a moment and I want to drive this point home is there are sects of Christianity out there that are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what I'm going to show you in a minute. Apart from the resurrection, if Jesus hasn't risen from the grave, lovingly I'm going to tell you we need to turn off the lights, pack up the things, sell the church, and go out and find something better to do because we're pitied. I'm a fool. And we're gonna see that in just a minute. Jesus' resurrection from the grave was his greatest miracle, and we're gonna camp on this uh, for a moment because it's so important to the, to the aspect of our Christian faith. Of all the miracles Jesus performed, the greatest was clearly his bodily resurrection, okay? Note this, his bodily resurrection, okay? When Jesus rose from the grave, he wasn't a phantom. He wasn't this far off thing, right? That it was like, hey, I'm here, right? Don't come and see me. Don't come and touch me. 
No, it was, I'm here. I am risen from the grave. See me, feel me, touch me. And what do we know? We see Thomas, right? What does Thomas do? He physically touches Jesus' nail marks, and he realizes, oh my gosh, you have risen from the grave. His bodily resurrection. And that's the other thing that I want to encourage us in is we have to help people to see that this wasn't some like light show. This wasn't some fancy thing where they used imagery to put up some holographic image of Jesus that wasn't real. And like I've said before, they then discovered that it was just a Wizard of Oz prank and there was some person back there manipulating things. People saw, touched, and felt the resurrected Christ. Through it, he demonstrated not only power over life, but power over death as well. The resurrection was, proof, uh, was positive proof that Jesus' guarantee of eternal life to those who would believe in him was for real. This isn't a joke. This isn't a happy suggestion. This isn't kind of a, a wonderful desire or wish. This is real. If you believe in me, because I've died on a cross and I've risen from the grave, you have been justified and you are now reconciled to me and you have eternal life. And I've proved it because I am now risen from the grave. We see in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Why do I bring this up? Because before Jesus dies, he's saying this is what has to happen. I have to be killed, but I also will rise from the grave in three days. Again, if it's a conspiracy, why would you give your game plan early? Why would you tell people this is what's going to occur unless this is God's plan from the beginning? Now, the next thing that I want to show you is how do we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? It's a good question, isn't it? How do we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, first thing, in Luke 24, 1 through 9, we see the witness of the empty tomb. Think about this for a minute. If Jesus had not actually risen from the grave, his enemies would have allowed, not allowed such a rumor to spread they would have publicly displayed the body of Jesus to disprove the rumor. All you gotta do is find the body. That's it. That's all you have to do. And think about this for a minute. If this is a conspiracy, if something was going on, and Jesus essentially, somehow, as we see some individuals say, was able to put himself in sort of a subcatatonic state or he was able to come up with some manner of deep breathing and reduce his heart weight to where he did not feel pain, but then resuscitate himself after being crucified, and then figure out a way to get out of a tomb of which was sealed by a rock that is immovable and guarded by 12 Roman soldiers without anybody knowing, okay? And then afterwards, even if he was alive, 
go around and have individuals not know him or not find him, but even more, have people go to their deaths on the cross or on crosses or in other means saying that they saw the risen Christ. At some point, if it was a conspiracy, somebody would have said, this isn't real. Jesus is right over there. I'll tell you where he's at. Somebody would have broken. All you gotta do is find the body. All you gotta do is break somebody. All you gotta have is one person say, you know what, this whole thing is just a conspiracy. So where is the body? And why didn't anybody break? Perhaps it was real. Dr. Lewis says this, we see the evident transformation of Jesus' followers before and after the reported resurrection. We're just going to take a look in an example, particularly of Peter. In Matthew 26, 69 through 75, we see Peter deny Christ three times. It's the denial event. Jesus even says, Peter, you're going to deny me. We come along, all is well. Peter says, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. You're my Lord. No way, right? We got good things happening. And then the next thing you know, what? Jesus is arrested, goes to the cross, dies on it. Peter's running around going, I don't know what's going on here. And the next thing you know, somebody looks over and goes, hey, you're, you're with that Jesus guy, aren't you? What does Peter do? Jesus who? I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, and then obviously I won't go elongate it, but that happens three times. Now, the story in that is we see the restoration of Peter's ministry through Jesus and the joy that's there. But Peter, when Jesus is dead, is saying, I don't know him. I have no connection with him. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? But now watch this. We continue on, and it says, yet after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, in Acts 4, 1 through 21, we see Peter risk his life before a hostile crowd to preach the gospel of Christ. What changed? How does he go from saying, I don't know who Jesus is, I don't know what you're talking about, if it's a conspiracy, to going before a hostile crowd, getting beat, mocked, bruised, and battered? and saying, I've seen the resurrected Jesus. What changed? He saw the resurrected Jesus. Proof positive that indeed Christ has risen from the grave. We also see in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, three through eight, that the resurrected Jesus appeared to all of the original apostles, to Paul, and to more than 500 people. And why do we bring this up? Because the other thing that individuals have said is that there were people that were so distraught over Jesus' death that they became emotionally incapacitated at the moment, and they had hallucinations thinking that they saw Jesus. That's actually out there. And actually people do believe this. And when you see that Jesus appeared to all of the apostles, to Paul and more than 500 people at various times, it's proof positive that these people were not in this catatonic sub-state thinking, oh my gosh, Jesus is dead, we must be hallucinating. They truly saw the resurrected 
Christ Jesus. But also recognize the immensity of the people that have seen the resurrected Christ. Because in a moment, we're going to see that none of those people who saw the resurrected Christ broke when they were persecuted to their deaths. The next thing that I want you to see is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19, we read, okay, this is it. This is your Achilles heel, all right? And and what I want to do for a minute is I want to tell you this. If you've got a conspiracy, if you're trying to protect yourself against something, right, and you've got this wonderful plan and this wonderful aspect, why would you go forward and say, if you want to bring this down, if you want to destroy everything that we've been founded on, if you want to destroy everything that we believe, the entire hope of who we are, the whole aspect of our Christian faith, I'm going to tell you, not only do we have an Achilles heel, but I'm going to show you how to get to the Achilles heel. Why would you do that? And that's exactly what the writers do. We read that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Okay? Find the body. Find Jesus. That's all you got to do. And if you do, our preaching is in vain. And it gets even better. Not only is our preaching in vain, but our faith is in vain. Not only is our faith in vain, but we're all false witnesses. Not only are we false witnesses, but our faith is worthless. Okay? What we're doing here right now today is absolutely worthless if Jesus hasn't risen from the grave. Better yet, I've got some really not so good news. We're still in our sins. We don't have eternal life. And also, those that have perished or those that have died have perished. There's no hope. And the best of all, is we of all men or mankind are the most to be pitied, right? You guys remember Mr. T, right? I pity the fool. Okay? Yeah, I pity the fool if Christ hasn't risen from the grave. That's our Achilles heel, right there, out in plain sight. Here it is. All you gotta do is find Jesus' body. And interestingly enough, what occurs They don't find the body. And they don't just not find the body when they're looking for the body. No one has found it to this day. Why? Because they're not going to. Because Jesus has risen from the grave and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, um, I talked about this earlier, but I want to read this specifically, and this is what we're driving toward. Um, I've spoke about Chuck Colson, and I think that several of you have uh, understood the context that is here, but I'm going to bring that up again. Chuck Colson was involved in essentially the water, Watergate scandal with Nixon's presidency. Okay, a little history lesson for you. Uh, Watergate, not a good thing. Nixon's presidency, when it was discovered, was doomed. From that, Chuck Colson actually became a believer in Jesus Christ, and this is what brought him to faith as he was analyzing what was going on. And this is exactly what what he says. Um, In Kingdoms of Conflict on page 70, he writes, sometimes personal experience offers the most convincing evidence. As I have written elsewhere, it was ironically the Watergate cover-up that left me convinced that the biblical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are historically reliable. 
In my Watergate experience, I saw the inability of men, powerful, highly motivated professionals, to hold together a conspiracy based on a lie. It was less than three weeks from the time that Mr. Nixon knew all of the facts to the time that John Dean went to the prosecutors. Once that happened, Mr. Nixon's presidency was doomed. The actual cover-up lasted less than a month. Think about this for a minute. Powerful people in positions of authority in less than a month began to say, it isn't real. They pressured these people and they began to recognize that this conspiracy, this cover-up, wasn't real. Now watch the difference in the resurrection of Jesus. Yet Christ's powerless followers maintained to their grim deaths by execution that they had in fact seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. We talked about essentially lunatic, liar, or Lord, right? If Jesus' claims weren't real, then he's either a lunatic or he's a liar, but if they are, he's Lord. Think about this for a minute, okay? If all of these people went to their deaths for a conspiracy that wasn't real, they're crazy. And it's not one or two people, it's hundreds saying, we saw the risen Christ Jesus. And it's not a slap on the wrist. It's death by execution. And nobody breaks. There was no conspiracy, no Passover plot. Men and women do not give up their comfort and certainly not their lives for what they know to be a lie. So friends, we've seen essentially this aspect that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for our sins. We've also seen that Jesus' resurrection from the grave was his greatest miracle. But also where we have our blessed hope is what I want to leave us with this morning and that Jesus has promised to return and establish his kingdom. If these other things have occurred and if this is God's plan A and if God's plan is not wavering and if in it we read that Christ will come again, then we can rest with confidence that indeed what has been stated is true. Someday, somehow, between now and when the Father says, Jesus, go collect your bride, for the people that are alive at that moment, they're gonna hear this great trumpet. And I was talking to somebody about that the other day. I, I don't know about you, but holy cow, right? I was thinking about this. Talk about a noon whistle, okay? Think, just think about this for a minute. I'm, I'm just gonna go real quick. When we first moved here, I didn't know what the noon whistle was. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm from Boulder, Colorado, you know, blah, blah, blah. I hear this thing go off and I'm like, what in the world? Like, is this a bomb raid? Like, what's going on? Is there, you know, and then somebody told me, well, you know, it's a tornado siren. And so obviously every time that thing would go off, I would freak out. And then I realized that at noon, you guys like to blow the noon whistle to freak out foreigners like me. What if, what if one day you're getting out of bed and you're brushing your teeth and all of a sudden you hear 
this trumpet, and I won't make a trumpet sound because it's not gonna be anywhere close to the glory of what happens when Christ comes home. Or comes to take us home, I should say, excuse me. That's gonna happen. It is promised. It will occur. Now, I'm gonna tell you this. If I told you it's gonna happen tomorrow at 12.35 a.m., what should you do? Say it louder. Don't believe me, okay? Either that or it's one heck of a good guess, okay? Because nobody knows. Nobody knows other than the Father. And the other thing that I want to encourage you in is this. Don't fall for anybody that says, God told me that Jesus is coming tomorrow at 12.35 a.m. Okay? But know that Jesus has promised to return. In Matthew 24, 3 through 8, and 23 through 44, as well as others, this is just a sampling, we see that many will come and mislead, claiming to be the Messiah, and that there will be rumors of war and famines and earthquakes and calamity. But Jesus will come at a day and a time only the Father knows. Why is that important? Don't allow the calamity of today to make you think that somebody has an inward track on when Jesus is going to return. Rest in comfort and know that no matter how bad or good it is, Jesus will return and nobody knows other than the Father. Now the next part about this though is is in Acts 1, 6 through 11, we do know that Jesus will come And how do we know that he'll come? What is our sight to recognize that indeed the real Messiah has come? He's not coming on a spaceship. Okay? How is he going to come? We know that he's going to come in the clouds, which is the same way that his apostles watched him go. That's how we know Jesus will return. Look to the sky. And that's how we know that Jesus is coming. And so this morning, we've looked at this man of history. Last week, we talked about his incomparable life and his unique beginning. This morning, we've talked essentially about his death on the cross as a substitute for our sins. We've seen that his, uh, his resurrection from the grave is his greatest work. And we also know that he's uh, promised to return and establish his kingdom. And so with all of that, what we're driving toward this morning is essentially that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, as well as promised return, prove that he indeed is the long-awaited Messiah. There is no other. We need not look for anyone else. There is no other person or individual to come. We have what we have in Jesus Christ, and we need nothing more. Which, interestingly enough, after this series, we're going to be going into the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be discovering, essentially, that we have the best of the best in Jesus Christ, and there is no need for anybody else. So the thing that I want to leave you with this morning is simply this. Given that we've seen who Jesus is, my question to you is, who do you say he is? And so with this, Dr. Robert Lewis says this, both by his life and his teachings, Jesus Christ forces a decision upon each and every person. And this is what I'm driving toward. There is an absolute force of a decision. You cannot ride the fence on this when you're confronted with the truth about Jesus Christ. 
Can he truly offer forgiveness of sin and eternal life? And was he really God in the flesh? No one can remain neutral. And so, as Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for you. We thank you for the truth of scripture. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, this morning we've seen what Christ has done to bring about eternal life through him. Father, thank you that he's been willing to do so on our behalf. Thank you that when we were still his enemy, he went to the cross for us to justify us and to reconcile us, bring us back into whole relationship with God. Thank you that what did that was the bloodshed, his body on the cross, his death. But also, Lord, thank you that in that, Christ didn't remain in the grave, but he rose above it. Father, therein is proof positive that Christ has power over sin and power over death. Therein is our hope. And Father, thank you that we know that many saw this, touched the bodily resurrected Christ, And thank you that in that, Lord, we see that because of what Christ did, people were changed to the point that they were willing to go to their death by execution, saying indeed that they saw the resurrected Christ. Father, with all of those things, our hope is in knowing that scriptures tell us that there is a point in time that only the Father knows when he will say, plan A, Jesus, it's time. Go collect your bride. And so with that, while we do not know the time, Father, I pray that as we live our life with you, that we would be a radiant bride, ready for your return. Father, help us to look to that with hope. Help us to look to that with anticipation. But also until that time, Lord, help us to go out and be salt and light for you. We do thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,